Welcome to our Soul Food Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Pray with me again, please. Father, we do thank you that uh, your word is a light to our path. We live in a dark world where we need illumination. And we're thankful that through your word and the empowerment of your Holy Spirit, we can walk lives that are pleasing in your sight make that our desire this morning anoint this vessel of clay we ask in your name amen it is difficult in life to be wise as we make decisions big and small how can we find wisdom Those of us who have made foolish decisions and suffered the consequences, and who hasn't, may ask, how can I learn to be more wise? Is it a matter of experience? Some people become wiser as the years go by, but some don't. Is it a matter of education? Some well-educated people are wise, but many are not. Is it a matter of chance? Are some people wise and some people fools, just as some people are tall and some are short? It is important in life to be wise. In every area of life, we need and we want wisdom. No one wants to make a foolish investment or a stupid purchase or form an unwise friendship or embark on a silly career choice or show poor judgment in giving others imprudent advice. By definition, a foolish decision is one that we will regret sooner or later. Living life well has a lot to do with wisdom. The difficult thing for all of us is that what is wise and what is foolish often only becomes clear when it's too late. We call this the wisdom of hindsight. The wisdom of hindsight is usually the realization that something that seemed wise at the time turned out to be disastrous. And that is the crux of what we're going to be looking at this morning. We have seen that Ahithophel was known for his wisdom. He is even listed among David's mighty men. And initially, he was known for giving godly wisdom. We are told that his advice was as one who had inquired at the oracle of God. But then he turns against King David and begins giving evil advice. He is the one who tells Absalom to sleep with David's concubines. And last week, we heard him submit a plan to actually kill King David, even though David is still the Lord's anointed. Most scholars think, and I agree with them, that he has turned from giving godly advice to godless advice, 
because of his bitterness over what David did to his granddaughter Bathsheba. I want us to look at his life this morning and learn the sad lesson that comes from it and gain wisdom that way. Verse 15, please. Then Hushai said to Zadok and to Abiathar the priest, This is what Ahithophel counseled Absalom and the elders of Israel, and this is what I have counseled. Now therefore, send quickly and tell David, saying, Do not spend the night at the fords of the wilderness, but by all means cross over, or else the king and all the people who are with him will be destroyed. Now Jonathan and Hamiaz were standing in Rogel, and a maidservant would go and tell them, and they would go and tell King David, for they could not be seen entering the city. If you remember from last week, both Ahithophel and Hushai were asked for advice by Absalom about what to do about David. Ahithophel advised that they should send 12,000 men after them that very night. And most likely, had that happened, David and his men would have been slaughtered. Hushai, on the other hand, advised restraint and caution. The only reason he did this was to give David and his men more time to escape. And this is where we pick up the story. David had sent the priests, Zadok and Abiathar, back into Jerusalem with their two sons in order to be his eyes and ears in Jerusalem. David was waiting at the Jordan River crossing until he received word from them about what to do. Now David had already told Hushai about this little intelligence network, and so that is where the priest's sons waited. They must not be seen coming or going from the city, or suspicions might be aroused. An inconspicuous female servant had been recruited to carry messages from the city to the men. They would then slip away to pass on the information to David. That was the plan. In Rogel was surprisingly fittingly named, it can be translated, the well of the spy. And so David is warned to not spend the night in the wilderness, but to immediately cross over. Verse 18, please. But a lad did see them and told Absalom. So the two of them departed quickly and came to the house of a man of Bahurim, who had a well in his courtyard, and they went down to it. And the woman took a covering and spread it over the well's mouth and scattered grain on it, so that nothing was known. Then Absalom's servants came to the woman at the house and said, Where are Ahimaaz and Jonathan? And she, the woman said to them, They have crossed the brook of water. And when they searched and could not find them, they returned to Jerusalem. We are told that a kid sees these two spies and quickly reports them to Absalom. Now suddenly, Hushai's real plan to gain time for David to escape was now in jeopardy. If the chain of communication to David was broken, or worse, if the whole network was exposed, then Hushai's warning could not reach David. And perhaps Hushai's treachery, at least from Absalom's point of view, would be exposed. This is a moment of high suspense. At this point, the account reads like the story of the two spies recorded in Joshua chapter 2. Rahab hid the spies under the stalks of flax on the roof of her house. 
Here, this woman in Bashorum hid the two runners in a cistern, covered the opening with a cloth, and sprinkled grain on the cloth. And so the cloth looked like it was there to provide a place for the grain to dry in the sun. Now, she felt she was not obligated to assist Absalom in his evil plans, and so this woman sent the guards off in a wrong direction. And so the young men were saved. And they arrived at David's camp, gave the king the facts, and urged him to cross the Jordan immediately, which he did. Now, the only thing that we know about this woman is that she told a lie to save the lives of two men. Now, we know that it's always wrong to tell a lie. Or is it? Sometimes there are exceptions to some of the rules that are in the Bible. For example, God said we were to keep the Sabbath holy, but Jesus said, not when the ox has fallen into a ditch. God said we must obey the government, but not when the government tells us to do something contrary to what God requires. So if you would have been in this woman's shoes, what would you have done? Okay. Please pay close attention to what I'm about to say because I do not want to be misunderstood. Is it ever okay to tell a lie? I think that it is under only one condition. I think I can show you biblical support that if by telling the truth would cause someone to be murdered, then and only then can you be justified in telling a lie. And even if you disagree with me and consider that to be a sin, I would ask you, what is the greater sin, telling a lie or turning someone over to be murdered? Along with our account this morning, let me give you two more examples from the Bible. In Exodus, Pharaoh decides to weaken the people of Israel by killing every newborn boy. But the midwives disobey and let the boys live. When the king of Egypt asks them why they're doing this, they answer, the Hebrew women are vigorous and give birth before the midwives come to them. Now, regardless of how vigorous the Hebrew women are, this statement is a lie. It is meant to lead Pharaoh to believe a falsehood, namely, that the midwives were doing their best to obey, but just couldn't get there in time. Now, does their dishonesty displease God? It doesn't seem like it. Because according to the next verse, we are told that God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And so we see not only are they not rebuked, they are actually blessed. Another example is found in Joshua 2, which I mentioned earlier. Joshua sends two men to spy out Jericho, and the king of Jericho finds out. They go to Rahab, who is a prostitute, and she hides them. Now when the king's messengers comes and looks for them, she says, The men came to me, but I did not know where they came from. And when it was time to close the gate at dark, the men went out. Where the men went, I do not know. Pursue them quickly, for you can overtake them. Now the rest of the chapter tells us how that she believed in God and is delivered when Jericho was attacked. So the biblical interpretation, in my view, is that her action was done from a heart of faith, 
even though she told a lie. In fact, Rahab is even mentioned in the Hebrews Hall of Faith in chapter 11, being one of the only the two women named, the other being Sarah. I conclude from these two stories that it is possible to be a person who fears the Lord like the Hebrew midwives or who acts in faith like Rahab and yet feels constrained in extreme situations to oppose evil by lying. Now listen, you don't have to agree with me on this. It's just something for you to consider. But if you don't agree with me, Please tell me after church. Because if I ever have to hide because someone wants to kill me, I won't be coming to your house. <laughs> You'd be like, you're looking for Pastor Bill? He's hiding under the bed. I didn't like him anyhow. Look at verse 21. It came about after that that they had departed, that they came up out of the well and went and told King David, and they said to David, Arise and cross over the water quickly, for thus Ahithophel has counseled against you. Then David and all the people who were with him arose and crossed the Jordan. And by dawn, not even one remained who had not crossed the Jordan. What's encouraging to me in all this is that at this time, David is running for his life. Can you imagine the humiliation and the shame that goes with your own son stealing the kingdom from you. He, David may have even been wondering, where is God in all of this? But unseen by him, at that very moment, God is very actively involved in David's situation. So when you find yourself in trouble, and we will all find ourselves in trouble and tribulation from time to time, but when it seems like our world is on fire and we can't see what God is doing on our behalf, we can know that he is actively working in our lives, even those times we can't see it or even perceive it. In 1774, a man by the name of William Cowper wrote these words, God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break and blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Blind unbelief is sure to err. And scan his work in vain. But God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. Look at verse 23 with me. Now, when Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his donkey and arose and went to his home, to his city, and set his house in order, and strangled himself. Thus he died and was buried in the grave of his father. Why did Ahithophel commit suicide? Was it because Absalom hurt his feelings by not accepting his counsel? I don't think so. I think it was because he knew that Hushai's counsel would bring about Absalom's defeat, and Ahithophel knew that he was serving the wrong king. 
as a traitor against King David, Ahithophel would either be slain or banished from the kingdom forever. So rather than humiliate himself and his family, he put his affairs in order and went and hung himself. His suicide reminds us of what Judas did when he betrayed. But not only was Ahithophel like Judas, he was also like Jesus. How? Like Ahithophel, Jesus came to us with wise counsel. But as collective humanity, we rejected his counsel. Ahithophel saddled a donkey. So did Jesus. Ahithophel rode into the city. So did Jesus. Ahithophel put his household in order. Jesus went to the upper room and put his household in order by giving instructions to his disciples. Ahithophel hung himself. And Jesus willingly went to the cross where he hung himself for you and I. But what strikes me here is how quickly things can degrade in the life of someone who is not serving Christ. It reminds me of Haman out of the book of Esther. Allow me to read you the account. So Haman went out that day joyful and with a glad heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate and that he did not stand or tremble before him, he was filled with indignation against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and called for his friends and his wife Zeresh. Then Haman told them of his great riches, the multitude of his children, everything in which the king had promoted him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and servants of the king. Moreover, Haman said, Besides, Queen Esther invited no one but me to come into the king to the banquet she has prepared, and tomorrow I am invited again by her along with the king. Yet all this avails me nothing so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all the friends said to him, Let a gallows be made, fifty cubits high, and in the morning suggest to the king that Mordecai be hanged on it. Then go merrily with the king to the banquet. And the thing pleased Haman, so he had the gallows built. So it seems like everything is going right for Haman. He's on top of the world. What could possibly go wrong? Keep listening. So Haman came in, the king asked him, What shall be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought in his heart, Who would the king like to honor more than me? And Haman answered the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let a royal robe be brought, which the king has worn, and a horse on which the king has ridden, which has a royal crest placed on his head. Then let this robe and horse be delivered to the hand of the one of the king's most noble princes, that he may array the man whom the king delights to honor. Then parade him on horseback through the city square, and proclaim before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robe and the horse as you have suggested, and do so for Mordecai the Jew, who sits within the king's gates. Leave nothing undone of all that you have spoken. So Haman took the robe and the horse, arrayed Mordecai, and led him on horseback through the city square, and proclaimed before him, Thus shall it be done for the man whom the king delights to honor. Afterward, Mordecai went back to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning with his head covered. 
And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. His wise man, his wife Zeresh, said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish descent, you will not prevail against him, but you will surely fall before him. While they were still talking to him, the king's eunuchs came in, hastened to bring Haman to the banquet, which Esther has prepared. It says, while they were still talking to him. I think that conveys that before he can even process the last bad thing that has happened to him, the next part of his judgment is now upon him. And if you know the story, you know that Haman was hung on the very gallows that he had built for Mordecai. But the thing that has always struck me about that account is how the rapidity of sin can quickly turn into judgment. Now, do you think I'm overselling this point? Let me give you a few names of people who were on top of the world in every way that our culture says is important. Whitney Houston, Michael Jackson, Elvis Presley, Kurt Cobain, Jimi Hendrix, Chris Farley, John Belushi, Prince, Marilyn Monroe, and even more recently, Robin Williams. What do they all have in common? They either committed suicide or died from an overdose. I'm not trying to be insensitive, but would it be fair to say that they all died just like Haman, from the very gallows they had each erected in their defiance of God? The Bible warns us it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. When God can animate the entire creation and even your own emotions to act in contradiction to you, this is what is happening with Ahithophel. It's kind of like when Jonah rebelled against God. And the Bible tells us that the sun was against him. The wind was against him. The waves was against him. The casting of lots was against him. The great fish was against him. The gourd was against him. And even the worm was against him. Have you ever had a mad worm come against you? That's a bad day. Bottom line, God will not be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Verse 24. Then David came to Mahanim, and Absalom crossed the Jordan, he and all the men of Israel with him. Absalom set Amasa over the army in place of Joab. Now Amasa was a son of a man whose name was Ithra the Israelite, who went into Ab Abigail, the daughter of Nahash, sister of Zeruah, Joab's mother. And Israel and Absalom camped in the lands of Gilead. Now when David had come to Mahanim, Shobi the son of Nahash from Rabah, the sons of Ammon, Makir, the son of Emil from Lodabar, and Barzili the Gileadite from Rogalim, brought beds, basins, pottery, wheat, barley, flour, parched grains, beans, lentils, parched seeds, honey, curds, sheep, and cheese of the herd for David and for the people who were with him to eat. For they said, The people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. In verse 24, David came to Mahanaim. Do you know where that is in the Bible? 
Mahanaim is a place where Jacob was leaving Laban in Mesopotamia and coming back into the land of Canaan. The problem was he was going to have to face somebody there. A great big hairy man who liked chili. We know him as Esau, the Chewbacca of the Old Testament. The predicament was Jacob hadn't done much fighting in his life. He kind of liked to stay home and watch cooking shows. And so you can imagine Esau driving up in his pickup truck with a gun rack and a bumper sticker promising the South will one day arise. And so Jacob was rightly terrified. But it is here at Mahanaim that we are told that angels came and met Jacob. And it is here that God assures Jacob that the Lord is with him. And so the God that had been faithful to the patriarchs would be faithful to David also. It is interesting the men in verse 27 who helped David. It's easy to read over them. Shobi was the son of Nahash. Now his brother was Hanan. Now this was the guy who shaved the beards and cut the garments of David's servants way back in chapter 10. David in turn waged war against him. Therefore, Shobi could have easily said, Me help David? No way. He killed my family. But he didn't. Makir was the man who hid and cared for Mephibosheth, you try to say it, for many years. <laughs> See, some water's all I need. It's Mephibosheth, Daniel. Therefore, he could have said, me help David? I've been taking care of a crippled guy for many years. It's someone else's turn to help. But he didn't. Now, Barzilli, as we'll see two chapters from now, was already 80 years old. He could have said, Me haul beds and earthen vessels, grain and honey, sheep and cheese? I'm too old. But he didn't. And yet, these are the same three excuses I hear and can also give all too easily. I'm hurt because brother so-and-so ignored me. Or I helped last time. It's someone else's turn. Or, I've done my time. I've paid my dues. It's time for me to rest. But Shobi, Makir, and Barzile realized that now wasn't the time to back out, but to press in. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Therefore, if we love Christ, let us be like Shobi, Makir, and Barzillai. Go where the people are hungry and weary. Go into the wilderness and give of yourself. Because quite frankly, there are no good excuses not to. And so we see that David has relied on God, and the Lord used these three men to bring all kinds of food to refresh David and his men. As we close, I'd like to share a true story with you. Years ago, in the early 60s, there was a man named Eli Cohen. He was a spy for the nation of Israel. Actually, Eli Cohen was born in Egypt, raised in Argentina, and later moved to Syria. He got in close with the Mossad, which of course is the Israeli version of our secret service, just a whole lot better. Now, there have been skirmishes up and down the Golan Heights for a number of years, as the Syrians have always wanted, and to this day still, wanted to control the Golan Heights. 
And at the time, they were launching attacks into Israel, just shooting into the populace. Well, Israel wanted to know what the Syrians were thinking and what their plans were. And so they sent Eli Cohen to live in Syria and to get involved in the, po the political system there. And he was so successful in this that he was invited to Parliament every day. He would then go home, and through Morse code, he would send back all his info back to the Israelis. One day he managed to get some of the Syrian officers out on the Golan Heights where they were staging future attacks. They were planning to mount up a force of 70,000 Syrians on the Golan Heights. And from that vantage point, they were going to attack in just a few weeks. And while the Golan Heights had thick shrubbery, there was no trees. Now this was a problem because the summers there are absolutely brutal. And the morale of the Syrian troops were down because there was no shelter and no way to cool down. And so Eli Cohen says, you know, you guys ought to plant some trees. The Syrians scoffed at this. I mean, no tree grows fast enough to provide shade if we're going to attack soon. Eli Cohen said, well, back in Argentina, we have these eucalyptus trees, and they grow really fast, and they grow great here. Let me go back to Argentina, and I'll get some, and I'll show you just how fast they'll grow. We'll transplant them. We can place them all around your bunkers, and it will give the troops some much-needed shade. Well, the Syrians thought that this was a great idea. And so Eli Cohen pretended to go back to Argentina, but really went to Israel, told them his plans, got the trees, and brought them, black, brought them back and planted them all around the bunkers. Eli Cohen then told the Israelis, look, in the next few weeks, the Syrians are going to attack you. And when they do, all you need to do is aim all your guns and all your tanks wherever you see eucalyptus trees. And in the 67 war, it was Eli Cohen's plan that helped defeat the Syrian army and drove them all the way back to Damascus. And like in our account today, the, Lord's frust the Lord frustrated the enemy's plans and gave victory to his people, and he still does that today. And Father, we are thankful for that. Lord, even the times when times are dark in our lives and we don't understand what is going on, we know that we can trust you. We know that we are in your hands and you will only do what is good for us in the end. Help us to have that maturity, Lord. Open our eyes to that. Ask in Christ's name. Amen.